0: In the Buddhist teaching, there is a great vastness of vision, it talks about different realms of existence and countless infinite number of world systems in this endless cycle of rebirths, sort of an infinite expanse of time. And although we may have a growing confidence in faith, both in our experience of and the teachings of the Buddha, still this vastness of vision for most of us is still outside the realm of our immediate experience. There's also another way of understanding the vastness of the vision of Dhamma. And that is opening to the nature of the mind itself. Opening to the nature, the causes of suffering, the depth of those causes within our own conditioning, and opening to the experience and the possibility of freedom. Given the context of this retreat, I think it's important, essential, that we understand these questions not as theory or as abstractions, but really how they can be applied very directly in our experience moment to moment. What is it that causes suffering and how can the mind be free? What is the meaning of enlightenment? We use this word, we use the word freedom. What actually does it mean? It's been described in different traditions from different perspectives. So it's helpful to get a range of viewpoints which we can look at this question. Some traditions talk of freedom and the nature of freedom from looking directly at those things which hinder it, which obscure it which look directly at the nature of the kalesas, that's the Pali word for defilement or obscurations, for all the afflictive emotions. So some traditions look very directly at all of these afflictive emotions in the mind and how we can free ourselves from them. This perspective on the teaching In this perspective, we can understand deeply the power of the first noble truth, the truth of suffering, because it's speaking directly to our lives, directly to how we're experiencing things. (coughs) Some traditions speak of freedom from the perspective of the enlightened mind itself, and they point very directly to the nature. Of the free mind, and how we can recognize that. How we can recognize the natural purity and radiance of the mind. But all of these perspectives and the teachings from all the traditions converge in one very simple expression of the Dhamma. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. All the teachings, all the levels of realization converge in this expression. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. <coughs> the Buddha said something quite striking about this Very simple direct teaching. He said, whoever has heard this teaching has heard all of the Dharma, has heard all of the teachings. Whoever puts this Dharma into practice has put all of the Dharma into practice. And that's how core, how essential this realization is. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Oh, it sounds so simple. Don't cling, be happy. (laughs) (laughs) So what's our problem? Well, our problem is characterized by an example or something you're probably familiar with. um, It's the example of this kind of monkey trap. You know, where they hollow out a coconut, attach the coconut, the hollowed-out coconut, to a post or a tree, put some sweet food in it, and make a hole in the bottom of the coconut big enough for the monkey to slide its hand in, like this, but not big enough for the monkey to withdraw its hand when it's in a fist, when it's clenching something. So what happens to us monkeys? We come along, you know, we smell the sweet food, we slip our hand in, grab the food, cling to it, grasp at it, and we're stuck. And the hunter come along, and we know we're in big trouble, but we can't get out, we're imprisoned. What's imprisoning us? Nothing other than the force of grasping, the force of clinging. If we could open our hands, if we could let go, slip out we would be free. It's a very rare monkey that can do that. You know, and I think that we see that in ourselves. So even though it's very simple to understand that grasping, clinging, is the cause of suffering, and that the essence of the free mind is that nothing whatsoever is to be clung to, Still, the habit, the conditioning of this clinging is very strong. So, we need to investigate a little bit further. And Steve spoke last night a lot about craving. I'd like to continue with that discussion because this is at the essence. What is it that conditions, that habituates us to grasp, to cling? One of the most profound teachings of the Buddha is his description or explanation of the law of dependent origination. And in this teaching, the Buddha unraveled for us the mysteries of our attachments. He saw so clearly and so directly what is it that conditions attachment, conditions grasping? We can look for ourselves. The beauty of the teachings is that it's not just to read about it or hear about it. It's actually to look, to, to see for ourselves. Contact with the object. When there's contact with any arising object... It conditions or gives rise to feeling. It's either pleasant or unpleasant. The feeling conditions craving. The craving conditions clinging or grasping. Just a simple example to see how this is actually working in our experience. Take some pleasurable object that arises. Now suppose you're sitting and maybe you have this maybe you have a strong sexual image come to mind. Okay, So there's a contact with the image. The image arises in this contact. Right in that moment of contact, connection with the image, right in that moment, we can observe the pleasantness there's a pleasant feeling that comes right with that pleasant feeling and we can observe this we can observe this process with that pleasant feeling mind is then conditioned to desire to crave to thirst we like that pleasant feeling we want it to continue because of the desire and one of, the, one of the translations of the Pali word, tanha, which is usually translated as desire uh, or craving, it's also translated as thirst. And it's a very uh, useful translation if we reflect on the experience of thirsting. You know, it really gives that sense of heavy-duty wanting. Okay, there's contact with the image, Right in the moment of contact, it's pleasant. Because of the pleasantness, there's that desire, the craving, the thirst. Because of the desire for the pleasantness, there's clinging to the image. There's attachment, there's grasping, and we're lost in some fantasy. Right there, we see see this law of dependent origination playing itself out. It's showing itself to us. It's revealing itself. So we need to come back to our experience, moment after moment, to see how we're relating to what's arising. Is there likes? Is there dislikes? Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Is it leading to craving? Is it leading to attachment? Is it leading to grasping? This investigation actually goes to the heart of enlightenment. In the first verse that the Buddha uttered after his enlightenment, it's a very famous verse, and I'll just mention the first two lines and the last two lines, but it's the famous house builder quotation. It's the moment after his awakening, the first thing he said, "O house builder, you have now been seen. You will build no house, this house of self, again. And the last two lines, realized, the unconditioned has been realized. Achieved is the end of craving. So he's saying very directly that the nature of enlightenment, the nature of the free mind, is a mind of no craving. That that is the cause of bondage. That is the cause of suffering. That's the cause of our entanglement in samsara. So I think it's quite incumbent on us to understand the nature of craving. And in many discourses, the Buddha outlined it, and this is what's so beautiful about the teachings, that in case we don't get it just with one two lines, it's laid out in such clarity. many discourses he talks of the three kinds of craving that bind us to samsara. There's craving for sense objects, craving for existence, craving for non-existence. Now I have read that hundreds of times because it's in, it's in many of the suttas, many of the texts, Craving for sense objects, craving for existence, craving for non-existence. And I always took it as a philosophical statement, sort of the metaphysics of suffering. This is what the cause of suffering is, these three kinds of craving. More recently, I've begun to see that teaching not as metaphysics, not as a philosophical statement, but actually as a direct instruction in the moment, as something to do, not something to either believe or, or not believe. If the mind of freedom is the mind of no craving, and these are the three kinds of craving, so what we're to do in the moment is to let go of these three thirsts, these three desires. It's sort of like, you know, the example of somebody going out and pointing up at the moon. When the Buddha gave this teaching, this teaching is like a finger pointing at the moon. If we look at it as philosophy, it's as if we keep looking at the finger. Yeah, that's right, or no, I don't agree with that. It's pointless. The whole idea is, the finger's pointing at the moon, can we actually look up at the moon? Can we look at where the finger is pointing? Okay, So we want to look, in each moment, at our experience, and how it relates to these three kinds of craving, and how we can let go of them in the moment, not as some far-off goal. In this moment, In any moment, can we realize, can we practice, the mind of no craving? No craving for what? The first is no craving for sense objects. How do we relate to each arising experience? Do we try to prolong those things that are pleasant? Or do we try to avoid or get rid of those things which are unpleasant We can see it very clearly with regard to sensations in the body we all like to sit and have nice light tingles now that's that's a very nice sitting where this everything is open and light and airy and soft and how much of our practice is about getting it if we don't have it, and trying to hold on to it if we do experience it. Probably quite a lot. Right there is craving for some kind of sense object. Now, and the reverse side of that, of course, is how much of our practice is trying to avoid in one way or another the burning, the tightness, the pressure, the stabbing, the, all the painful emotions, the sensations. We can see the same force of craving at work with mind states. And we all like it when we sit down and the mind is still and calm and quiet and peaceful and joyful and happy. How much of our practice is to get those experiences or to avoid the times when it's restless and agitated and fearful. and This is a very deep conditioning with us, and yet our practice is not about getting pleasant things or avoiding unpleasant. Our practice is about the mind of no craving, because that's where the freedom is. There's a wide spectrum of intensity of our thirsts. I think it's helpful just in considering our lives outside as well as our practice to reflect a bit on the different levels of intensity in which we get entangled with this force of craving, craving for sense objects from one extreme when it's an obsessive passion consuming our lives, when we are so lost in the object of our wanting, in the very force of wanting, that it is really ruling our lives. There's one example which I read several years ago in, in the newspaper, you probably remember this, It was so... Outstandingly hard to comprehend. And I I, I hope I get the story right. But it was the mother of a cheerleader, you know, in, I think it was in Texas or someplace, who either arranged or tried to arrange to have another girl on the team killed so her daughter would make the team. That's something. I mean that's an intense kind of craving that is overriding. So that's kind of what I call an obsessive passion. (laughs) You know. We may not go to that extreme, but you know, we each probably have our own. Another level of intensity may not be the, these obsessive passions which, which just overwhelm us in our lives, but another kind, another level of intensity of craving for sense objects has to do with our addictive wants, our addictive cravings. You know, those things that we're actually addicted to, whether it's alcohol or drugs, or cookies, or chocolate or movies, or whatever it is. You know, and to see the power of it when we keep doing things repeatedly, even when we know that they're harmful for us. And that's shown us that this is a very powerful force. When we know something is harmful, and yet the power of that craving keeps us doing it. And as we all know, both in ourselves and in our society, the problem of addiction is a very great one. And this is what the Buddha is talking about, and the possibility of freeing ourselves. There's consuming passions, there's addictive cravings. There's the kind of craving that's more ordinary, one might say, but just... The cravings of recurrent fantasies. You know, we've all had that experience in meditation where we sit and we have this intention to be with the breath or the sitting touching, whatever. And yet the mind just gets pulled again and again into a particular fantasy or other. What is that other than the force of craving, of wanting, of thirsting? And it's binding us. This is craving for sense objects, whether it's Object of body, object of mind, external objects. And on the simplest level, to notice the craving, just in the very passing wants, desires, that arise in the mind, doesn't have to be any big dramatic thing, just to watch that movement of mind. as we recognize more and more clearly how craving arises, the different forces of it, the different intensities of it, we can really further our investigation, further our understanding of it. And there's one very important piece here, which For me has been very uh, insightful and liberating, and that is the understanding that it's not the object itself that we're craving, but rather the pleasant feeling that comes with it. I'll just explain how this, when I saw this clearly, how it worked in my own mind because it was so striking to see that it wasn't the object, that it was the pleasantness that went along with it, that that's what the mind was going for. In noticing and paying attention to my experience, I often found myself either explaining or justifying you know, the various desires for simple things, by the thought, I'm not really attached to this. You know, and whether I'm not attached to this cup of tea. really not. I'm not attached to reading for the hundredth time the same announcement on the bulletin board. No, because when I looked at it, I really wasn't attached. And because that statement is true, that I'm not really attached to the cup of tea or to reading the bulletin board, it made me overlook something more important. That that what was driving the desire was not the attachment to the object. That what was driving the desire was the craving for the pleasant feeling, even a minor one, that went along with the object. It was like, oh, can I have another hit of pleasantness? And the object is almost irrelevant. When I saw that, and continue to see it, it really helps the mind not be deceived so often. Because it's easier to understand that the pleasant feeling, the pleasant hit which we're going to get, is very momentary. And so when I notice that, oh yeah, the mind's just reaching out for another pleasant hit, it's no big deal. But when I didn't notice that and thought, well, I'm not really attached to this cookie. (laughs) I might as well have it. It wasn't understanding the
1: process.
0: (laughs) It wasn't understanding what I was really going after. And so just caught in this very deep conditioning of craving for pleasant, for pleasantness, for that little hit. So much of freedom of mind comes from seeing things clearly. And Krishnamurti expressed this so well, he said that it's the truth which liberates, not our efforts to be free. It's not our struggles to be free, it's the truth which liberates, which means that our efforts are to see clearly. Because in that, the light of understanding actually frees the mind. So, this first type of craving for sense objects, and really for the pleasantness (coughs) that arises with with each one, in every moment, as we go through the day, can we cut through this craving? Can we actually let go? Can we come in the moment, and even for a moment? Can we come to, can we realize, can we experience the mind of no craving? And we can do this. It's really a question of remembering. It's not difficult to do. We simply need to remember to do it. So the second kind of craving which the Buddha talked about, which leads to attachment, (coughs) leads to grasping, is the desire for existence. In traditional classical teachings, this is usually interpreted as desire for rebirth and particularly rebirth in the pleasant realms, you know, in the deva realms, the heavenly realms. And the Buddha talked a lot of these deva realms, it's you know, the way of delighting the mind and making the mind light and happy. They're you know, wonderful descriptions, you know, of existence in these realms. Beings with bodies of light, I'd never get coals. <laughs> no pain in the knees, <laughs> heavenly music, you know, pleasure groves, and fantastic descriptions of these pleasure groves, and heavenly meditation halls. You know, it's said that Maitreya, who is the bodhisattva next in line to become Buddha, is now residing in, in one of these heavens to sit the realm. You know, in teaching the Dharma there and waiting for his birth as human to become Buddha. And one of my very favorite lines from Munindraji, my first Dharma teacher, who spoke a lot of this, and I delighted in it a lot, he said, looking you know, at most of the Westerners and seeing uh, the expressions of disbelief, he would say, you don't have to believe any of this. It's true, but you don't have to believe it. <laughs> so, in one sense, sort of desire for existence is this, and desire for rebirth. But even though these descriptions of the heaven realms you know, might delight the mind, and they they can, you know, especially in understanding that. The practice of sila, the practice of generosity, is what conditions it, is what gives birth to it. Still, it's very much like that example which I mentioned in the first talk of a bee buzzing around in the jar and thinking, oh, I think I'll buzz up onto the top and see what it's like up there. You know? and So we might have this thought, oh, buzz up, buzz up onto the deva realms, have a little experience. But it's still being caught in the jar. It really does not solve the problem at all still very much caught in this wheel of life and death and rebirth. So as I was examining the mind of no craving from an experiential point of view rather than a philosophical one, something very interesting happened in terms of this desire for existence because there's a way of understanding it that actually applies to us in the moment. It's not only about you know, desire for rebirth or deva existence. It has much more immediate implications, especially for people in, in practice. This desire for existence in meditation can take the form of expectation. Expectation is very subtle because it often comes disguised. It can come disguised as effort. oh, I'm making a good effort here. But hidden in that effort is a wanting something. It can come disguised as investigation. You know, where we're really looking very carefully, but hidden in that investigation can be a desire, can be a craving. We need to look very carefully at this force of expectation in the mind because it is an aspect of desire for existence. It's the desire for certain meditative states. It's the desire for something to happen. One way I've understood it in my experience, I see it as the in order to mind. I'm being with this in order for whatever, with this breath in order to be with the next breath, or with this sensation in order to see it disappear. This desire for existence can take the form of a fascination with the process. And the problem is, the great seduction is, that the process is fascinating. You know, we're sitting and there's this great unfolding and unwinding and uncovering and unburdening and lots of things are going on, as you well know. And the very fascination of the process keeps us locked in, keeps us tied in. One time I, this was when I was in Burma, I'd been practicing for some months, and practice was in a very good space, and I was just noticing just the smallest, most microscopic level of detail, and I was completely into it. I was just seeing how things were happening on that level. I went in for one interview and I described this to Upadita at some great length and he gave me one of the best comments and the most freeing comments. He said to me, you're too attached to subtlety. (laughs) And And I was. It was a kind of craving, it was a kind of attachment. Can I see it even more microscopically? There was such fascination with how it was all happening. It was fascination with the process of becoming. And that really ties us in to this craving for existence. Do you see how that's working? How, how we can get attached to the process itself? That's of a different order than attachment to sense objects, attachment to sense pleasures. It's a more subtle meditative uh, expectation. In any moment we have the capacity to disengage the gears of craving. It may be just for a moment, but this is not something we have to practice for 20 years in order to see or realize or understand. In any moment that we realize, that we remember, we see what's happening, can we just sit back without any craving, without any expectation, It's like disengaging the gears of identification. This is craving for sense objects, craving for existence. And the last kind of craving is craving for non-existence. And when I was thinking about this, it reminded me of a club that Michelle and I started some years ago. We called it the Duca Club. <laughs> as we were go- both going through periods of great Dukkha and the thought of non-existence seemed very appealing. <laughs> There's a poem that we had as our, uh, I don't know what the right word is, motto, uh, motto of the Duca Club. There's a poem by, I think it was a Central American poet, um, the first line of which was, Oh, to be a stone with no feeling at all.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> that, seemed, that seemed to capture the essence of the Duca Club. <coughs> this desire for non-existence. But there's a paradox here. And a very important one to understand and one that can uh, illuminate this very uh, subtle kind of craving that can arise. And that is that the very desire for non-existence is actually reinforcing the sense of self. Because it's predicating a being, someone, to be non-existent as if there is someone there to want this, to become this. And so it's locking us in the very desire for non-existence, is actually locking us into the prison of self. Great discovery is that there is no one there either to take birth or not to take birth there's no one there in the first place. It's only the ignorance of this, this belief in and creation of the sense of self and all the desires which come from that, which keep us bound in suffering, keep us bound in samsara. There's an English writer who lived in Hong Kong He went under the name of Wei Wu Wei. And he kind of had a Buddhist Taoist background. He wrote some wonderful books with a lot of short aphorisms. He said, believing in the self or acting from the self is like a dog barking up a tree that isn't there. And I love that image because I can just picture this dog barking up a tree that's not there. and how much of what we do in our lives is just that barking. So can we cut through, in a moment, and even for a moment, can we cut through to a mind of no craving? Not craving for sense objects, not craving for existence, not craving for non-existence. So, I'm talking about this at some length because I found it helpful to actually practice it. This is an instruction of the Buddhas. It's not metaphysics. It's something we can do in the moment. And it's actually just a question of reminding ourselves. And so, as you go through the sitting or the walking, just from time to time, as a as an exercise, you might just have come to mind this, this instruction, oh mind of no craving. And just see, in that moment, can the mind let go in that moment of wanting anything, of thirsting for anything. Because this gives a deep and true perspective on what the practice is actually about. It's not about having certain experiences. It's about freeing the mind from craving. The Buddha spoke of three gateways to this liberating understanding. Three gateways to freedom, to freedom from craving, to taking anything as being I or mine. The first of these gateways is the insight, the experience, the realization, the clear seeing of impermanence. And this is talked about so often because it is so critical, so essential for the mind of non-grasping. Because as we see it more and more clearly, we see that there is nothing to hold on to as being I or mine. We can see it on all levels. On whatever level we look, we could look at on the level of, I don't know, clusters of galaxies. I don't know, something whatever is bigger than that. I mean, just, just get the image, you know, big, big. Uh, <laughs> just galaxies and clusters of galaxies, and it's all changing down to the smallest of subatomic particles. Everything in this universe is in this process of arising and passing away. Nothing lasts long enough to cling to when we when we see it, when we when we realize for ourselves the momentariness of it all. And this is not something again that is far off. This is right within the domain of our experience. We'll do a little experiment just now to to give you a sense of how immediate it is. Just if you don't mind you could just move your arm, slowly, <coughs> and just feel the sensations of the movement. And notice the difference when you're on the level of concept, my arm is moving, and you come right to the level of direct experience of changing sensations. On the level of concept, arm doesn't change. I had an arm yesterday, I have an arm today, I'll probably have an arm tomorrow. But on the level of experience, it is instant after instant, moment after moment, these sensations are changing. There is nothing solid there. Our practice is to stay right on this level. We're not making this up, we're just dropping into the process of what's happening through the clarity of our seeing, of our clear seeing. That's what Vipassana means, clear seeing. Sometimes we experience impermanence in our practice. You know, when an object arises and as soon as we know that it's gone. Well, sometimes object arises and it's almost as if by the time we get there, it's gone. And often people think, well, this means my mindfulness is poor because I can't quite hold on to the object in order to see it. That's an incorrect understanding. Because what we're really seeing at that time is the impermanence of things. Don't try to hold on to it in order to see it. Notice the fact that as soon as you notice, it's gone, it's gone, it's gone, it's gone. Or maybe we see the impermanence from the side of things arising. We're with something, and then just as we're with an object, something else comes, and then something else comes. All of this is the direct seeing for us of this truth of change. In the moment of being, with the impermanence of experience. There is no past, there is no future, and there is no present. The quality of the mind associated with this insight into impermanence is faith. can see that everything is changing, is dissolving, and that we're not creating this. We're not making it up. (coughs) But to settle into this flow of change takes some trust. We have to be able to surrender to this flow of impermanence. And at different times we experience it differently. Sometimes we feel the change, experience it, (coughs) and it's very exhilarating. It's like exciting. And at different times we experience it differently. Sometimes we feel the change, experience it, (coughs) and it's very exhilarating. It's like exciting. And other times we're with the change and it's very fearful because actually another word for change is loss. And so from the perspective of seeing it in that way, we see in every moment something is being lost over and over and over again. Well, when this is felt deeply, it's like there's no sense of security anymore. We're really giving up any security that we thought we might have. And so we go through phases of feeling very fearful, very anxious about this. We also come to a place of great equanimity. We feel exhilarated, we feel fearful, and then we come to a place of great equanimity, great ease. There's a wonderful example of this process of somebody (coughs) flying in an airplane, jumping out of the airplane, and the first situation is one of freefall, and the tremendous exhilaration of that. And I've never done it, but it sounds like it would be fantastic. You know, just free-fall through space. But then at a certain point, the person recognizes that they don't have a parachute.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, so
0: you can imagine the terror, all from the excitement of the free-fall to the terror of no parachute. And so falling, 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 and all that terror. And then they come to realize, well, there's no ground. So in the realization that there's no ground, the mind comes to a place of ease. can relax into that fall through space. No parachute, no ground. It's faith which allows us to experience the impermanence. It's that quality of faith which allows us to open to it. And our increasing experience of impermanence Likewise, strengthens the quality of faith or trust within us. Ajahn Chah wrote something, as usual, very apt, about this whole process of letting go. He said, do everything with a mind that lets go. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace if you let go completely you will have complete peace your struggles in the world will have come to an end it always comes back to this the mind of no craving the mind that doesn't hold on the mind that lets go that's what we're practicing We're not practicing trying to get something. When we understand this, it changes the whole energy of our practice. So this is the first gateway of liberation, the insight into impermanence, the realization that there is nothing to hold on to. The second gateway to this mind of no craving is the experience of dukkha, of suffering. And we experience suffering in different ways. We experience it as pain, whether physical pain, emotional pain. We experience suffering or dukkha as unreliability, that things are not to be depended on, precisely because they do change. Now we get everything set up, we get all our cushions in order, we get our walking space, we get our life organized, conditions don't stay the same. We never know what's coming. It is very unreliable. So this causes some anxiety in us, as long as we're trying to hold on. (coughs) There's the dukkha. It's called Sankara dukkha. And it's basically the dukkha of just the effort needed to keep things together, to keep our life together. But how is the understanding of dukkha a liberation, a gateway to liberation? How does it free us? It's like holding on to a hot burning coal. When we realize that we're holding on to the hot coal. Okay, hand, let go. Probably not. When we really open to it, when we feel it, In the moment of that openness and awareness, the letting go happens. Often in the face of suffering, and this is something that I think would be helpful to check out in your experience. We often become attached to our stories about it, our stories about ourself with respect to the suffering, or we can become identified with our resistance to it, that we're not actually surrendering, opening up. And so we tighten, we contract in not wanting to feel it, in not wanting to open. So in both ways, we imprison ourselves. I'd like to read one of another poem from that book, Stephen Mitchell's. He's the one who wrote the uh, about the camel going through the eye of the needle. This one, you're probably familiar with the myth of Sisyphus, you know, from Greek mythology, where this guy is condemned to roll this boulder, push this boulder all the way to the top of a hill, and then just as he struggles and gets to the top, he falls back down and has to start all over again. In the myth, he's doomed eternally (laughs) to this task. Well, this is the Buddhist perspective on this myth. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a tragic hero, condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain, and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with that rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it, looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment He is permitted to step aside, let let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. Opening to the suffering without attachment, without identification, actually allows us to let go of the hot, burning coal, to let go of the identification, to go home. The quality of mind that's associated with this insight into dukkha is concentration. Just like faith accompanies impermanence, it's concentration which actually gives us the strength And the steadiness of mind to be with the suffering, not to contract in resistance, not to get lost in our stories and our identification about it. When the mind is steady, when the mind is still, the dukkha, the suffering of whatever kind, can simply be felt as it is, so that the suffering, the dukkha itself, becomes a doorway to non-craving. And the third gateway, the third door to liberation is the insight into selflessness, anatta or emptiness of self. And we realize this in different ways, experientially, not not philosophically. We can see that all of our experience arises out of conditions. Everything. Everything in our body, in the mind, in the world outside, everything is created, is produced out of conditions. There is nothing which self-exists. There is no self-existent nature in phenomena. Everything is appearing out of conditions and disappearing as conditions change. We can see that, we can observe that. We can observe or experience selflessness in the understanding that no experience belongs to us. There's no one behind it to whom it's happening. And as proof of this, we see that experience is not amenable to our will. And we can try We can come in and say, okay, no thoughts this hour, (laughs) no pain, no getting older, (laughs) it's very obvious it doesn't work. that things are happening according to their own laws. If the conditions are there, the phenomena will arise. When the conditions are not there, the phenomena does not arise, so it changes. Everything arises out of conditions, not because they belong to us. And the Buddha's great gift of the Dharma was that he understood so clearly what conditions, what arising conditions lead to happiness, and what arising conditions lead to suffering. We can also experience this truth of anatta, this truth of selflessness, in every moment of experience in which there is no clinging to whatever it is as being I or mine. In any moment of experience, free of I or mine, we have the experience of anatta. And one of the simplest and most direct expressions of this, and it's, it struck me very deep when I first read it, was from the 17th century Japanese Zen master Bankai. In this particular teaching he said, don't side with yourself. And I just don't side with yourself because it made me reflect in so many ways both in meditation practice and in life how we side with ourselves. And in the very siding with ourselves, we are getting lost, we are getting imprisoned by the very notion of self. This short instruction, don't side with yourself, frees us from the contraction of (coughs) self-reference. The quality of mind associated with anatta, of selflessness, is the quality of wisdom. That is investigation and clear seeing. That's what reveals the selflessness, reveals the empty nature. For as with impermanence and as with suffering, anatta, or selflessness, becomes the gateway to the mind of no craving. As we see the conditioned, insubstantial nature of phenomena, we stop grasping at appearances. We see there's nothing there to grasp at. It's all impermanence, it's all insubstantial. And as we see and recognize the empty, clear nature of awareness itself, we stop siding with ourselves. And this whole process becomes a flow of empty phenomena rolling on. I'd like to close with just a teaching from uh, one of the really greatest Tibetan uh, masters of the century, who died a <coughs> few years ago, his name is uh, Dilgo Kense Rinpoche. And these are teachings on the nature of mind. And again, it's just pointing very directly to suffering and to freedom. Like waves, all the activities of this life have rolled endlessly on, yet they have left us empty-handed. Myriads of thoughts have run through our minds, but all they have done is increase our confusion and dissatisfaction. Normally we operate under the deluded assumption that everything has some sort of true, substantial reality. But when we look more carefully, we find that the phenomenal world is like a rainbow. Vivid and colorful, but without any tangible existence. When a rainbow appears, we see many beautiful colors. Yet a rainbow is not something we can close up, clothe ourselves with or wear as an ornament. It simply appears through the conjunction of various conditions. Thoughts arise in the mind in just the same way. They have no tangible reality or intrinsic existence at all. There is therefore no reason why thoughts should have so much power over us, nor any reason why we should be enslaved by them. Once we recognize that thoughts are empty, the mind will no longer have the power to deceive us, We need to be vigilant, constantly examining our thoughts, words, and actions. To cut through the mind's clinging, it is important to understand that all appearances are empty. Beautiful forms are of no benefit to the mind, nor can ugly forms harm it in any way. Sever the tie of hope and fear, attraction and repulsion and remain in equanimity in the understanding that all phenomena are nothing more than appearances of your own mind let's sit for a few minutes